<sighs> it's very cold here in Alaska for those of you who want to know how bad our weather is. It's bad. January the 20th, 2019, lecture discussion number 50 on the book of Joel. <sighs> to everyone's surprise, or to no one's surprise, okay, no one's surprise. Last week, I failed to finish anything that I started. Uh, my plan was to rush through Acts 4 and 5 as fast as I could go. And in, I hope to bring some clarity to everything that those chapters harbor. And then in one magnificent finale, coup de gras. What is coup de gras? Is that some kind of car? Um, yeah, I took French in high school and junior high. Uh, I can do crossword puzzles. That's about all I can do with it. But uh, I expected to conclude with the totality of the meanings of slavery because I've been asked to do that as it is depicted, portrayed in Scripture, God's definition of slavery, if you will. And then, of course, uh, conclude uh, Acts 4 and 5. Needless to say, my pavement, or what you would call my good intentions, notwithstanding, failure to arrive at the proposed destination occurred as usual, as it always does. So my motto, as you know, is this, if at first you don't succeed, row, row, row your boat uh, up the river without a brain in your face book. Oh, I worked hard. Tube. I keep milking it. <coughs> okay. Maybe, maybe I didn't get that right exactly, but it's good enough for who it's for. Anyway, today we're going to endeavor to re-persevere. How's that? Uh, many pieces to collect on these subjects of slavery in Acts 4 and 5. Slavery, just to do something with it, because I know that, um, that there, there's a young lady out there that wants me to get to this, and I'm trying my best. Uh, I know it's not necessarily very good. Slavery is captivity. As long as you recognize the relationship between captivity and slavery, you're on the right path. And this is given to us in the Old Testament uh, record of Samson, Judges 16, 1 through 3, where Samson rose at midnight after being in the city. He takes hold of the gates. They're trying to kill him. That makes sense with regard to Acts 4 and 5 as well. We'll get to that in a minute. So it works in both directions here, which is why I'm trying to combine them. But Samson gets the gates of the city, and he carries them 40 miles or so up a hill, and, and he freed all of those who were held captive in Gaza, all the people that were enslaved there in Gaza. Is that happening again? Absolutely, it's happening again. How fascinating. And the gates were massive, extraordinarily heavy, and he pulled them up from the foundations, the, the foundational structures. He, he just yanked it all out of the ground. They must have weighed thousands and thousands of pounds. And he carries them 40 miles up a mountain, not a mountain, but what they would call a mountain. And he threw them into a valley. And this, is, a, of course, compares to the gates of hell or the gates of death, Christ freeing us from the grasp of death. And ultimately, we choose that which will be our destiny. Either we will choose captivity or slavery to sin and death, or we will choose freedom and life that Jesus Christ gives us. And that's your decision. Again, that will play into Acts 4 and 5. And that's why I'm trying to 
meld them as best I can. All biblical discussions on slavery have the ultimate slavery as the template that they are fitting into. So whenever you come across slavery in the Bible, know that ultimately you are talking about um, slavery to death. Something that I plan to address today, I hope. And then I wrote this note, probably not, maybe sort of, but probably not. And then now I got 15 pages on something completely different. But that's all because I bogged down last week. I came to a full stop and I need to winch myself out as best I can now today. Last Sunday, which was lecture number 49, um, that's for the Internet folks, We went flying around Acts 4 and 5, Genesis 14, Genesis 15, Matthew 26. Let me put that all back on the board again. And I didn't have a chance to read it. And I don't have today as well because I've done this in the past. uh, And I always in the past uh, am not comprehensive. I just can't get it all in there at any given time. And I feel this need to move on because people do. Fatigue, I know that's very surprising that people absolutely fall dead asleep during my lectures. <laughs> it happens every Sunday. I provide rest as best I can. Um, oh, here. I didn't put this one on. I don't think. Maybe I did. But that's pretty much where I was last week, trying to get these pieces in established with regard to Acts 4 and 5. So that's uh, um, Acts 4, 5, Genesis 14, Genesis 15, Matthew 26, Exodus 14 and 17, Numbers 20. It's about as far as we got. And all of that, uh, uh, in in all of that self-imposed velocity that we had, comes the inescapable incongruity. There's just no way you can do it fast and make it have any real value, I believe. The difficulty in cementing um, the correlations and the causations just can't happen when you're doing it that cursory or that shallow. The cause and effects, if you will, causes and effects, if you wish that way, can't be well done. And we are constantly reminded that correlation is not necessarily causation. I know you've probably all heard that. However, the author of Scripture is the omniscient creator of all things including time. Therefore, he's exempt from human-based perspectives and reasonings. He does have correlation and causation. He can't help it. He's omniscient. When you add omniscience to correlation or to cause and effect, it takes it entirely different, uh, puts it in a different category completely. And so we've got to train ourselves to recognize that he... He repeats things for a reason, whether they're the effects or the causes or the correlations or the, ca- or the causations. He's repeating them. And so we have to notice that. The elements uh, of Acts 5, which repeat. So this, again, if you haven't been here last week, this is the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, where they are struck dead instantly. And most people who uh, discuss this in religious uh, environments... Um, do not pay very close attention. And most of the time, the sermons that I have heard on this subject or the books that I have read are very, very incomplete. How's that for a euphemism? So there's a list here, the things that he repeats. 
he repeats possessing or possessions. And he keeps saying that they sold their possessions, that which they possessed, the pos- uh, that he says proceeds. So pay attention again. When God is repeating things consistently, it's because he thinks we're dumb. That's a joke. Um, he's emphasizing keep points for us so that we get it. And if you constantly here, we're seeing this possessions, 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 or possessing. They sold their possessions. Their, the, that which they possessed, they sold. They, got, they took the proceeds, the proceeds. Um, the Levites, and I'm saying this because it is obvious to me that the Levites are identified as selling their land and their houses. Now, some will say, no, it's not houses and land in Israel. But I don't think it really matters, frankly. And I do believe it is land and houses in Israel. We'll get to that in a minute. This phrase, at the apostles' feet. Feet keeps coming up. Everything is laid at the feet, laid at the feet, at the apostles' feet. Sapphira dies at the feet. Of all of this, what's the reason that that is said? There's great fear comes in. Now, this isn't, some will say it is awe. There's no indication that it is awe. The indication is, is that people were absolutely petrified. So something happened here that made them so afraid. Who was it that's afraid is the question. What are they afraid of? There are young men involved in this. They come up again in Acts 4 and 5. So I guess I should put Acts 4 and 5 right here. And then uh, there's this that I think is hardly ever noticed, and that is wrapped, carried, and buried. So those that's the list that I think has the greatest, if you will, value to the discussion. Now, there are many other things there that I didn't uh, enunciate or didn't uh, list, but nonetheless, I, I do that because once again, we're flying around. So let's go now, however, and read Acts 2 and see what you notice there. Here's Acts 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. This is Peter. Peter's saying, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and, and, and it says in verse 40, now that's the context in verse 38. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continually continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Notice who's doing those signs and the wonders. Who's doing it? Let's answer. It's a one-word answer. Who's doing the signs and the wonders? Apostles are. Who's not doing it? Everyone who's not an apostle. Can't be any more clear. Gonna make some people mad at me again. That's what it says. If you're doing signs and wonders, there's great fear. Again, is that awe or is that fear? 
Which one fits it the best? Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, fear came upon every soul. The apostles, the apostles, the apostles, the apostles performed many signs and wonders. Possessions and goods were, were sold, all things in common. Notice also 3,000 were saved. From the perverse generation. Immediately now, what comes into play? 3,000 saved. What do you do? You go find all the 3,000s in the Bible. Where's the first place you go? Exodus 32:28. What happened there? 3,000 were killed. 3,000 slain at the great sin of the golden calf. Have 3,000 saved and 3,000 slain. Moses saw that the people could not, would not be restrained, it said. Restrained from doing what? Restrained from killing Moses. Couldn't stop him. They were coming to kill Moses. He comes down the mountain. He knows that he can't stop. They're coming to kill him. They intended to kill Moses and Aaron, Exodus 32, 25. Then Moses calls out. He says this. So let's, let me set the scene. He's, he's coming down. He finds the golden calf. He crushes it up and makes the people who made it drink it. Then he looks and notices that the people are not restrained. They're coming to kill him. So he calls out, whoever is on the side of the Lord, come unto me, he says. Let me repeat that. Whoever is on the side of the Lord, come unto me. Now consider Deuteronomy 18.15 with that, that phrase, those words of Moses. Moses is a, here at Exodus 32.25. Moses is a type of Christ. Perhaps the most comprehensive in all of Scripture is Moses. So I have to know that. I have to know that he is the, the, the one who is like unto me, he says. There will come a prophet like unto me who will use my literal events... And you will know who it is because of that. And he cries out, let me repeat it, whoever is on the side of the Lord, come unto me. That is the call. And all of the sons of Levi come to Moses. Now that's interesting. So the Levites come to Moses. All of them. And they killed 3,000 who sought to kill Moses. And Aaron said of those killed, they were set upon evil. So the point being, yea, a point. Acts 2.41 cannot be understood apart from Exodus 32.28. Nor the inverse. Moses and the Levites will give you information about the Peter and the Levites at Acts 4 and 5. And the reverse. Levites were coming to Peter. They were selling their lands and their houses. Peter says this is an evil and perverse generation. Israel at that time is called by Christ an evil and adulterous generation. That's Christ that calls them that. 
So I have a repeating, if you will, of Exodus 32. How do you suppose an evil and adulterous, uh, perverse generation is going to react or going to respond when they see their Levites selling land and houses and then placing the proceeds of those sales at the feet of Peter? How's that going to go over? Just imagine it happened in a church here in town. Let's just pick one. We won't use any names again like we did last week. Uh, Joel Osteen. Just imagine if all the rich people in those churches started throwing their money down, saying that what we're doing is wrong. Um, those of you on the Internet, Bill brought up, what, what was uh, the name again? Meyer. Who decided that, uh, who recently decided that maybe the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine was a perversion. It's good that she figures that out in time. I bless her heart. Listen, it's never too late until it's too late. So good for her. The health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine is a wickedness, always has been. But how do you expect these churches would react if all the people that uh, were on the side or, or are in the inside of those churches began to throw their money, uh, to the, gave their money to the Salvation Army or to any place but them there? What would be the response? Now, explode that by tens of thousands. I have Levites selling their land and their houses and putting it at the feet of a fisherman who all of a sudden is uh, literally amazing. He went from being maybe the dumbest guy in every room he walked into to this. Read, his, read what he wrote. Read what he said. He's extraordinary. Shouldn't be so hard on Peter because if I was with Peter, they would all look at me and go, wow, Peter's really smart compared to that guy. And that's the truth. I mean, keep an understanding. This is a man that walked with Christ and, and is empowered in a way that has never been repeated of any human being outside the other apostles. The apostles have not been repeated. There have been no new apostles. Sorry. Not really sorry at all, am I? Not, that was even, not even barely. It's obvious fake sorry. It's important that you know that. Otherwise, you end up with a disconnection from Scripture. I've noticed that everyone that calls themselves an apostle starts driving a pretty nice car pretty quick. Doesn't happen very, it happens really fast. Where was I? When you discover a New Testament mystery, which is what this is, Acts 4 and 5 and Acts 2, um, you have this complexity and always err on the side of complexity. Always say it's likely more difficult to understand than I think. When you discover one of these that are difficult to resolve, where are the answers always? Where do you find out the answers to what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? You find it in the Old Testament. Obviously, the reciprocal is likewise true. Old Testament perplexities are disentangled by their New Testament compliments. And a compliment with an E, not an I. Obviously, the question is, what is the meaning of the 3,000? 3,000 who die and 3,000 who live. It's a division, isn't it? 
excuse me, a division of good and evil. There's 3,000 in darkness who die and 3,000 in light, 3,000 in death, 3,000 in life. And the theme of the Bible is this dividing, this division. A great theme of the Bible is this. Christ himself says, Matthew 25, 32, that he will divide the nations as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Genesis begins with dividing, as you know, Genesis 1-4, dividing the good light from the darkness, dividing the waters from the waters. The two-edged sword of Hebrews 4-12 that divides the soul and the spirit from the joints and the marrow. Or if you wish, the, 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 the spiritual from the physical. And it is called the sharpest of all swords. Jesus Christ has the two-edged sword. Revelation 1.16. Revelation 2.12. Revelation 2.16. He identifies himself as the holder of the two-edged sword. That he, he is the two-edged sword. At Matthew 10.34, Jesus says this, Do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace. But a sword. What sword is he talking about? The two-edged sword. And this, that saying that I just gave you, Matthew 10, 34, is given many hardship, and that's unnecessarily the case, but it still is. The sword is the two-edged sword. He came, he comes twice. He has two advents. Christ calls out in his first advent. What does he say in his first advent? He cries out. He yells out. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me. Ooh. What a surprise. Word for word what Moses said. Come ye after me. Mark 1, 17. Dividing, therefore, is occurring at Acts 2, 4, and 5. Let me add 2 in here. We're seeing this division. Now, keep in mind that Ananias and Sapphira received a sentence of instant death. That's your key piece there. A sin unto death. So what were they doing that causes that to be the sentence that they get? Could it be tithing? If it's tithing, there'd be dead people in every church all over the place. Can't be tithing. Can't be. We have to then go around and find all the people that have immediate instant death. Nadab and Abai who come to mind immediately. That's much different than Ananias and Sapphira. But I still have this element here. Now some argue that Ananias and Sapphira received a trial. And that Peter is the presiding judge of that trial. And I would counter that Peter was not the judge uh, he he may, if you wish, you would want to call him the prosecutor or the prosecutorial or the, what do you call the, I guess that's correct. I'm not a, an attorney. I pretend to be one, though. He has, a, he has a role that is more akin to a prosecutor, but certainly not the judge, because the judge is the one who passes the sentence, and Peter does not pass the sentence. That is God himself. It is God who dispensed the sentence. Peter has no such authority. And with that being said, it's of vital importance to be aware of Peter's amazing. He has something amazing in Acts 4 and 5. Gosh, I should probably read it. Let's just do it. Not going to have enough time today. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. 
If you go back to Acts 4, you'll see really fast let's do that too. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anything say uh, that any of the other thing. Well, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. For all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them, brought the proceeds, laid them at the apostles' feet. Okay, so here, now that that builds on that builds to five one. But a certain man, that's a certain man. He's identified as a certain man. What's it mean, a certain man? This isn't arbitrary. There's something unique about this man. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back of the possession, of the proceeds, I'm sorry. His wife also being aware and brought a certain part and laid it, laid at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back of that of the, excuse me, of the price of the land for yourself while it remained. Was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart that is satanic? You have not lied to men but to God. Then Ananias, hearing those words, fell down and breathed his last. Okay? So Peter knows stuff here. Peter's level of knowledge is ridiculously high. If you want to think of it this way, uh, what Peter knows about Ananias seems to be impossible. Peter knows that Satan is hovering in the neighborhood, doesn't he? What's it take to know that Satan is hovering? Peter knows Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit of God. So he knows what the lie is. Do you know what the lie is? Peter knows that Ananias has kept back of the price of the land for himself for some reason. And that Sapphira knows it too. Peter knows Ananias owned the land. Peter knows that Ananias controlled the land after it was sold. Peter knows Sapphira is involved in the conspiracy. Peter knows that there's young men near. Most obvious of the obvious question is how does Peter know all of that? Once again, we have a New Testament question. And once again, we search the Old Testament for the answers. Oh, looky here. I think I found a place. How handy. Let's go look right here. This will be fun as I define fun. <laughs> What's that? I haven't told you where I'm going yet. <laughs> Those of you on the internet, this plaintive wail came from the back. Where are you going? I want to know. <laughs> I will tell you in a second. Okay, maybe a little longer than a second. I'm going to 2 Kings 6, 26 through 7, 2. A man of God knows that a king is sending someone to kill him. Does that sound familiar? This is Elisha. 
He knows a man has been sent, an officer on whose hand the king leans, a military assassin in the case of Elisha. And Elisha knows well before it happens. How does Elisha know? I should point out that Elisha is a type of Christ at 2 Kings 6 through 26, 626 through 72. He's also, this is where the floating axe said his, one of the great symbols of Christ in all of the Old Testament. But here at 626 to 72, Elisha is portraying, displaying, would be more accurate, in type that Christ always knows, that Christ is omniscient. There is never a time when Jesus Christ is not omniscient. And Elijah is portraying this, the omniscience of Christ. So here we go. Let's read it. Second Kings 6. Uh, let's see. We'll start at uh, verse... Uh, where was oh, we'll start at 24. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cob of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. So dove droppings went for, you had to buy that with silver. How big of a famine is this? A donkey's head, 80 pieces of silver, if you wish, shekels of silver. Then the king of Israel was passing by on the wall. A woman cried out to him. Whoa, that's very interesting, this woman crying out. Help my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help from you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Then the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered. This is one of the most fantastic pieces of scripture in the Old Testament, in my view. The woman said to me, give. And she answered, this woman said to me. So the woman who cried out to the king says, there's a woman. Another woman. And this woman said to the first woman, Give your son that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. And she's asking the king to find that woman and get that son so that she can eat that child. That is the besieging famine that is going on in Samaria. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes as he passed by on the wall. The people looked. Wow, that's an important piece of information right there. The people looked. And there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. Oh, how convenient. Then he said, God do to me... Do, God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, has remained on him today. So do you got it so far? A woman comes out, says, I had this agreement with another woman. We were going to eat her son after we ate my son. Great famine. We're going to eat mine today, hers tomorrow, but she hid her son after we ate my son. And the king, he says, well, kill Elisha now. Behead him. You got to put all that together because it makes sense if you put it together right. If you don't put it together right, 
You're going to be all askew. What's the first mistake everybody makes when they read that passage? They believe the woman. Never believe a woman. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's been a debate in this country for a while, hasn't it? <laughs> Can't wait for the mail. <laughs> if you, never mind, but I'll get to it in a minute. But you look at what that woman says and you better be suspicious. I've tried to give you an inclination that, that there's something wrong here. You should be able to pull it apart really fast. Anyway, always keep firmly established when reading the biblical accounts, uh, this typology of Christ that he is always omniscient. And so now we've got this going on, portraying his omniscience. So here's another list. How am I doing? I don't really have time. I'll just run it down. I have a king of Syria. Well, maybe I do have time. Put it up here. I have a king of Syria. And all of his army is coming now to besiege Israel. So he's, he's attacking Samaria. He has it besieged, surrounded. Um, So nothing can go in and nothing can go out. And there's mass starvation. And a woman calls out to the king. And I'm going to tell you, this is a very evil woman. Extraordinarily evil. She said there's this agreement between her and another woman over the eating of the two sons. And that her son has been eaten. And, and she said, we were supposed to eat mine, or we ate mine today, and we're going to eat hers tomorrow. What's, what's wrong with that? It's obviously a lie, isn't it? I can buy dove droppings for silver. Dove droppings. They're cutting the heads. This is the same as, this is socialism on display, except it's a siege in this case. They're eating the farm, I'm sorry, they're eating the zoo animals, the unclean animals. They're cutting the heads off of donkeys, going for 80 pieces of silver. And the lady says, we're going to eat my son, or her, yeah, we ate my son, and we're supposed to eat her son tomorrow. Well, if I ate, if she ate a child, how old do you think he is? If that happened, would you eat another child the next day? Of course not. So automatically you know this is a lie. And the king happens to have sackcloth sackcloths on. And his anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. So right here, the Sumerian king orders the beheading of Elijah. Elisha. And Elisha, he knows. And he's with his elders. And he talks about the kings, the sound of the king's feet. 
Let me read that. Elijah was sitting in the house and the elders were sitting with him and the king sent a man ahead of him. And before the elders, the messengers came to him, he said to the elders, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Calls the king a son of a murderer. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his is, is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still talking with them, there was a messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord tomorrow about this time, this a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So the officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And Elisha said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So Elisha Brings up the sound of the king's feet. Where am I here? Elisha knows the famine will end. He tells him the famine will end. And then he tells him that all of that will happen tomorrow. Oh, that's interesting. And then he says the killer that has come to behead him will himself die. Now, you can feel free to read the remaining passages. There's four lepers, and then the death of the officer, who is the hand of the king, occurs, and you can read that. There's no time for us to... It's fantastic stuff. There's no time for us to continue the chapter. But hopefully you can see why Second Kings 6, 24 through 7, 2, relates to the Old Testament counterpart, that is Acts 5. I have someone that knows that he's going to be killed He knows who's going to kill him. He knows who sent him. He knows the relationship between the two is very close. And the one that comes to kill him, of course, ends up dying. Elijah is with his elders. Peter is with his apostles. The king sends a detachment to kill the prophet of God, led by his closest officer. The prophet knows the killer is coming before he comes. Peter knows Ananias is coming. Peter knows who's coming with Ananias. There's an evil woman who lies. Who somehow is central to the plot at 2 Kings 6. She's the eater of children. She she describes herself as the eater of children. Sapphira at Acts 5 is correspondingly involved in the plot against Peter. The woman in 2 Kings 6 is identified. She is assigned as the catalyst. She's given prominence. The reason the king uses his rationalization to kill Elisha is because of what this woman who cries out to him says in full public view. Everyone sees the king have sackcloth on. Everyone hears the king say, i got to kill, behead Elijah because of what this woman said. What's the obvious question? Sapphira is named as a co-conspirator with Ananias. 
Did the woman who called out to the king in 2 Kings 6, is she the wife of the man who was sent to kill Elisha? I want to know. It's possible. The king leans on this man. This is the man who tells the king what to do. He leans on him. Is he the one that formants, I'm sorry, formulates the plan to, to behead Elisha? Uh, in any event, Elisha knows. If you want to prefer it this way, if you want to back it up a little bit, not carry it, extrapolate it all as far as Ananias and Sapphira, is she known by the king? She clearly is used to justify the beheading of Elisha. So how involved is she? At what level? I have a tendency to err on the side of complexity, as you know. As an aside, who else now has to be added to X5? I've got someone coming to kill Peter. I'm proposing that. I've tied it to 2 Kings 6, where I have the beheading of Elisha. So where am I now? What else fits in here? Certainly Matthew 14, the beheading of John the Baptist. Herodias, or Herodias, and her daughter, the dancer. King Herod, the incest. You might be uh, thinking at this point, how much information is there that has direct relevancy to Acts 5? Well, if you answer a lot, bring a lunch and a dump truck. You're on the right path. Where else does a wife die that's evil? Elijah, Jezebel. I can do this all over the place. Anyway, last Sunday I meagerly attempted to present Genesis 14 because, again, I think Genesis 14 is where is the foundation, is the starting point. Melchizedek, who is Jesus Christ, Abraham, and the king of Sodom, who in this case is Satan because the king of Sodom was killed earlier. And, and this person that meets with Christ and Abraham is incredibly powerful. And, and it's the only person it could possibly be is Satan. So I have Jesus Christ, I have Abraham, and I have Satan. And I have Satan again in Acts 5, right? And I have these people that were in captivity. And the Shetel Amalur is a... A antichrist figure. I don't have time to do that today or any day probably in the near future. I've done it many, many years ago. But he, he came and took these people and one of those was Lot and Abraham grabbed a few guys, uh, a bunch of sheep and goat herders and then some pretty special men, incredibly powerful men and uh, from uh, Aniakam as a matter of fact. And they go down and destroy uh, the man who uh, captured all of those people and they bring those people back. And they also bring the possessions or the goods back as well. And there's this meeting now between Melchizedek, Abraham, and Satan. Or Jesus, Abraham, and Satan. And Satan makes Abraham an offer. And Abraham refuses Satan's offer on the basis that Satan, if he accepted it, Satan would then accuse Abraham of making him rich. In other words, uh, Satan would be able to say that I, Satan, made Abraham rich. And Abraham recognized that that was evil. And he could never allow it. And so he told him, I will not take anything from you. I'll take the people. 
And again, Genesis 14 is the undergirding uh, to Acts 5, in my opinion. God in that uh, Genesis 14 is described as the possessor of all things. Melchizedek is the king of peace and the high king of peace and simultaneously the high priest of God most high Genesis 14:18 through 22. He's outside of time Hebrews 7:3. Obviously Melchizedek is Jesus God, the possessor of the heavens and earth. And that explains why the Levites were prohibited from owning any land. Because they can't allow Satan to say that he made them rich. And because they're supposed to choose the people like Abraham did. They're not supposed to be rich. They're prohibited from owning land. There's a shallow way to explain it. Those who have been given the responsibility to teach the word of God should not fall prey to being rich. Thank you. I see the time. The rich have this relationship to needles and camels, and it's not good. You cannot serve Christ and worship money. Now where have I gone? Matthew 4 comes to the play now. Satan offered Christ what? Riches. He offers the power and kingdoms. He offers the one who is the possessor of everything, including Satan, Money. Now that is really dumb. It's evidence that Satan is not as smart as he thinks he is. Is he smarter than us? Oh yeah. Anyway, the Levites who sold their land and houses rejected the possessions that they had. They repented of it. They did not want Satan to say that he had made them rich. And so they chose their reward. Abraham chose the people, as did those who sold their land in Acts 4 and 5. Anyway, another anyway. How many anyways have I done so far anyway? I might need a new category. I might have to add anyway. And so, so would be completely black. Oh, well. <laughs> Peter and the apostles knew every detail of Ananias and Sapphira before it occurred inside of time, just as Elisha knew about his impending beheading before it occurred inside of time. Both are threatened with death, but instead the one that is tasked with killing them are themselves dead. Peter, as does Elisha, reveals to those who ha- who come, who are sent, that their thoughts and deeds are completely known, have been totally exposed. How did that go over? I cannot help but imagine the reaction of the one coming to kill Elijah, uh, Elisha when he realizes Elisha knows who I am, what I planned, everything I did, Every aspect of it, I think that includes the evil woman. Before I even did it, what chances do I have of killing a person like this? 
And then he tells me, I'm going to die. The famine is over tomorrow versus eating the child tomorrow. The famine is over tomorrow, but you're going to die. There's Ananias. Peter is unveiling Ananias' steps one by one in front of him. Did Ananias think that Sapphira had betrayed him to Peter? First thought, woman did it. Always the right place to go. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I must need more sleep. (laughs) Keep in mind, in these times, it was very difficult to determine or pinpoint the actual identity of anyone. Now, Peter had already been pulled in in front of the high priest and and the Pharisees in Acts 4, so they had a pretty good idea who Peter was. But was Ananias there, even though he has the same name as the chief priest? Is he part of the chief priest family? We discussed that. Was he there? Again, there's no fingerprinting, there's no photographs, there's no video, there's no DNA, there's no lighting systems, there's no communication. All there is is messenger-based, and there's very few, therefore, opportunities that exist for authorities to make definitive arrests. Real easy to deny it. Very difficult to say that's him. Wrongful accusations were very common, if not prevalent. So if you're going to send somebody to death here, you've got to have it nailed down. And thus the necessity to concoct operations that could withstand public scrutiny. You kill somebody like Peter, and you get it wrong, what happens to you? That's a number-based system there. What I mean by that is that nobody has guns. Everybody has swords and rocks. It's a fair fight. You can't control people. Mobs will kill you. Ask the French. The rich French, by the way. You can see that building in this country. The resentment towards the producing class, the elite class, which is not necessarily the same as the producing class in this country. They're hated now. Hated. That's really bad news for them. Be out there. So they had to have these operations that could, could bear public uh, questioning. But they needed the sentencing to be accepted, especially if it is a death sentence. And hence you see this Judas kiss, which is assigned to the military that was accompanying Judas. I'm saying the same thing occurs here. Ananias was attempting to replicate the positive identification that was used previously. I said last week that there is a relationship between the sign that is Judas's kiss and the sign that is Ananias's offering. Anyway, Peter would be captured, not some lower level peripheral follower. It's Peter that they're, that's being sought after. And again, the rulers that have seen Peter, they don't want to be any part. They've got to distance themselves. They're going to be the, the judges. They can't be the captors and the judges. So they can't be there. Otherwise, it pollutes it. So somebody has got to figure out who Peter is that hasn't probably seen Peter. Has just got a vague description. Again, the young men, likely temple guard, they're hidden in the crowd here, waiting for the agreed-upon signal. So if Peter accepts Ananias' offering, placed at his feet, is he a Levite? Is he a priest? He's a fisherman. What's his problem? 
He would be accepting an offering without being in the priesthood, without being a Levite, and would be subject to what? Trial. I'm submitting that uh, they wanted to imprison him at least and kill him at best. Maybe kill him at least. They're very satisfied with uh, having the Romans take part in what they thought was the execution of the omnipotent God, which is brainless. But they're following the same patterns. Notice that Peter says Ananias' name. He knows Ananias' name. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Peter knows this is Ananias. Does Ananias know this is Peter? I submit that Ananias does not know specifically who Peter is. Generally, perhaps, has a description, but positively no. So he has to figure out who Peter is. And he's hoping that Peter is the one that's going to take the offering. It gets a little bit more complex than that, but that'll keep you started. Again, the rulers need deniability, and they're going to keep away. So how does Peter know Ananias? It's because Peter knows. That's how. How does people know that the woman Sapphira is aware? He says so, Acts 5, 2. Again, Peter knows lots of things, just like Elijah. Did Peter accept the offering? Yes or no? Immediately to be Peter, which is obviously part of the plan here. As soon as you grab that offering, activate the arrest. If he refuses, assuming the offering of the other Levites were private, when you tithe, do you stand up and say, here's my 20 bucks, I'm putting it in the offering plate now, everybody look at me. Is that how we're taught to, to some churches? Yes. There's churches that are amazing. I mean, amazing. I'm amazed. You, you have to sign in your attendance. That's incredible to me. We should take attendance. Yeah, make you sign in. They actually do. They want to know if you're there. Because they want to make sure you're doing what? Uh, that's right. It's, it's, it's pressure. It's unbelievable. But it happens all over the place. It's common tactic. Technique, I should say. Just amazes me. They don't trust you to be, uh, what's the word I want? They don't trust you to, be, they don't trust you to your own self-evaluation or examination. They want to force you into compliance. Now that's, that's a really bad doctrinal position to be in. So I'm asking, did the offerings of the other Levites, for example, Barnabas, were they done publicly or were they done privately? Over here, I have a very public woman screaming at a king. Over here, I have a very public man giving an offering. That's what I would expect. And Ananias, in any event, had a face-to-face encounter at least with a guard in proximity, a guard force with Peter. And Ananias' offering has witnesses. They all witnessed it. It's, uh, and the, when, it, when he was killed, when he died, there was incredible fear. Incredible fear. I mean, think about, you're the temple guard. You're there to make an arrest. And the guy that's the son of the high priest is now dead. That's by itself not good news. 
Then think about how he died. That's not good news either. Problems abound. Probably getting rid of my, my, my identification at that point. <laughs> okay, I'm completely out of time now. Peter knew the plan and he allowed this offering of Ananias. And that was, and Peter, uh, Ananias thought Peter valued the money over the people because why would he think that? Because that's what they do. Never occurred to him that somebody would be like Abraham and would take the people over the money. If you're going to bet today whether or not the church would take people over money, you're going to bet badly. Church today is going to take money over people. Read Genesis, or I'm sorry, Revelation 3.16. Money over people. Back to Genesis 14 we go where we're taking people over money. So I have the inversion of Genesis 14 here. It's a fatal miscalculation on Ananias' part. And Peter knew that Ananias would lie to the Holy Spirit. That's a key piece here. What was the lie? Where will I figure out what the lie is? It's got to be someplace else in the Bible, doesn't it? Got to be. You think he's got a new lie? Who else lies to God? Where in the Bible do people lie to God? To his face. Well, we have Matthew twenty-two eleven. There's a king. He sees a man that doesn't have a garment. He's got, he doesn't have a wedding garment. Ananias came before God. Ananias didn't have a wedding garment. The king said to the man that didn't have a wedding garment, what did he say? He said, bind him up, carry him away, and send him, cast him into utter darkness. Almost word for word what happened to Ananias. To lie to God's face is not about tithing. What is it about? What did Ananias lie about? He kept it a little bit back from the tithing, but that's not the lie to God. That's just him being wanting money. It's part of it. We'll get to it next week. We have to solve Satan, the young men, and the hold back. But the lie, to lie to God's face, it's a lie of belief when there is no belief. You think you can fool God. You can tell God that you believe when you don't believe. You like your chances? What's going to happen? Wrapped up, carried out, and buried. Cast into outer darkness. Take him away. Cast him into outer darkness. Bind him hand and foot. Take him away. Cast him into outer outer darkness. Okay. Again, next week, as I said, we'll tie it all up. Mix in slavery. Sorry, Sherry. And uh, we'll figure out what Satan is doing here, what the young men did, and uh, what this hold back is. But at least you have a start. New Testament problem, Old Testament solution.